0: it wasn't so long ago that we had common touchstones for the news the morning paper the evening broadcast but now it's been a decade since the launch of the iphone and the rise of facebook and our shared news consciousness has been replaced, for many, by the personalized heartbeat of social media. Today's college freshmen were just eight when the iPhone was released. For them, the broadsheet and the broadcast belong to a past that was never present. What is their view of the news like? How good are they at separating fact from fiction? And how might that change in the years to come? Today on What's New, Fake News and The Next Generation. Welcome to What's New. I'm Dan Cohen. I'm joined today by two researchers who are exploring how young people digest information online and how they approach the news. John Wibby is an assistant professor of journalism and new media at Northeastern University. He's currently writing a book about the future of news in a networked world for MIT Press. Welcome, John. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Allison Head is an information scientist and social science researcher. She's the founder and director of Project Information Literacy, an ongoing national research study that asks, what is it like to be a student in the digital age? Welcome Allison. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. It's great to have you both on the program. Allison and John, you've recently coined a phrase that has really stuck with me. Um, You've written that we are in a factual recession. Uh, John, what do you mean by that?
1: Well. To be honest, it's a little bit of a of an attempt to try to capture something with a with a bit of a catchy phrase, but we do think it has some basis in, in larger patterns and trends. And um, one thing that we're concerned about, and many people are concerned about, is the uh, the decline in trust of uh, mainstream sources of of news and information. And uh, this uh, is located. Um, in the ideologically conservative community to some extent, but it's actually fairly broad. And it's a secular trend that actually dates from the 70s and is prior um, to the Internet and, and to cable, but I think is accelerating now in the age of social media. And so um, that lack of trust and that lack of sort of common space, common ground um, is, uh, is concerning. And so we, we sort of co- tried to coin a phrase, factual recession. Allison, since since 2008, you and your team at
0: Project Information Literacy have interviewed over 13,000 undergraduates at more than 60 universities and colleges to try to understand this factual recession and how young people approach the news and truth online. How is the next generation approaching this news environment and what John just mentioned about the decline over the past decades?
2: I, I think it's a good question. I, I think part of that equation that John's talking about and when we wrote our piece on factual recession um, is the pace of news and the production and all these different channels coming at students in this case through social media predominantly through links and such on their Facebook pages through Twitter and also uh, from professors through assignments and the pace and the quickness of the pace has really impacted how students learn And how they absorb and what messages they do absorb about the world around them Mm. and making sense of it. So I would say that that is the major change is pace and students how they deal with it is often this shift that we've talked about from truth to consensus and uh, as a way of fact-checking. So the question really here, if you're a professor or someone that cares about these things deeply is what's your formula for arriving at consensus? Do you go beyond a Google page of results? um, Which we found in our research, most students don't. And that's of concern. And to round out John's comment, really does help feed the factual recession that's occurring now.
0: So can you say a little more about this uh, movement from truth to consensus? You often you talk in your research about the wiki voice and the attractiveness of the wiki voice. I think our audience is probably familiar with Wikipedia, which tries to achieve some kind of neutral point of view, as Wikipedians like to call it NPOV. Um, how, How is that sort of suffused out through the college student population and the younger generation in general?
2: I I think the way you get information, especially for students and a younger generation, is through the Wiki Voice. And um, when we did a study on uh, lifelong learning, blogs came up a lot. And we have a piece that's coming out in October on why blogs have endured in First Monday that's going to be published that talks about why recent graduates, those up to 30 years old, turn to blogs still. And at the core of that was, as one, one interviewee said, I believe in the Wiki Voice. That's how you get at truth. And in interviews that we did, I think this is the best example, Um, a student in finance that had gone to a big public institution in the Midwest, university, and said, I was top of my class, I got a degree in finance, and I got out of college and I realized I didn't know how to put together a personal budget. And she said so I went to blogs and the attraction there with blogs and and I think with social media as well is this crowdsourced discussion and verification on some level of information when I asked her well, how come you didn't go to a friend and say can you help me set up a personal budget which somebody older probably would or maybe a parent uh, and she said but I got the richness of a conversation and all the posted comments. So it's not necessarily the blog entry. It's really the discussion that goes around the entry. And she said, and after a year, I. I could evaluate whether that personal budget system worked or not for early graduates, uh, early adults, as we called them in the study, where there really aren't that many resources for making that tra- transition to adulthood. And um, that's where the behaviors, the information seeking behaviors, get really interesting.
0: So, John, related to news, I, I don't often think about news as having a wiki voice now. It is very, it is actually very opinionated. Um, but you talk about satisficing with news, that these students, as Allison just mentioned, they're going out there, and rather than going to a newyorktimes.com, they're going to blogs, they're going to websites, they're going to Facebook. Um, they're probably finding a lot of very opinionated material. How do they... Uh, synthesize that together and come up with some perspective of what's going on in our world? So
1: I guess the first thing I'd say is, um, I don't think we should necessarily lament all of these trends. I think Mm -hmm. lots of them are really positive. And, you know, for 20 years, we've been talking about the democratization of information, including more voices and perspectives and not having an information ecosystem dominated by, you know, large, television stations and, and, and newspapers. So I think there's a lot of good in, in this in this movement. Um, I would say uh, that the way students are finding things these days is quite complex. And the more we look at the patterns of access for information and, and knowledge, the more we find that there's a lot of kind of ambient uh, consumption of things um, and um, a lot of it, it should be said, is not necessarily ideological. So, the, if you think about the the, the pie that people of, of sort of news and information that people either want or access in a given day, most of it is, you know, weather, sports, how to fix the drywall, um, you know, how to whiten your teeth. I mean, there's, you know, the 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 vast majority of stuff is not Republicans versus Democrats. That said, the stuff that is, is hyper-partisan. And increasingly, that's being accelerated, I think, by by social media, uh, which has an algorithmic uh, uh, curation dimension to it. So I'm not sure I got to your question exactly, but um, I just want to put all those things on the table.
0: Yeah, it's, well, it's interesting that uh, you bring this up. I mean, if anything, we have more angular news right, than well-rounded news. Mm-hmm. And you have these students going out and trying to, Search for the truth, but um, as Allison mentioned, um, you know, uh, coming to consensus or trying to find a consensus among the discussion also that happens around truth. Um, you know, we've we've often heard, I think, about filter bubbles and this concept that that uh, all of us are sort of personalizing our newsfeed and, and thus end up uh, reinforcing our viewpoints. Um, It it seems that the two of you in your research actually feels it it goes deeper than a filter bubble. Can you talk a little bit about that, Alison? How how are these um, consensus points reached by, let's say, your average college student and why do you think it's it's tougher to overcome than just uh let's say changing the algorithm on facebook
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i you know you see this as the common solution over and over again in different works and other people's research and discussions about pressure Put on Google and also Facebook to fix the problem right of Facebook
0: Yeah, technological and, fix for a technological uh, problem, right?
2: Fix the problem to fake news. Please respond. This is a horrible situation It's not that easy and uh, what John and I have have worked on in our research and and often in discussions is to go beyond the algorithmic fix to really focusing on the critical thinking competencies Mm -hmm. that students have, because no matter what the algorithmic fix is, it will change and evolve, and it's limited. The other thing that that, the filter bubble, um, which is Eli Pariser's term and, and book that was quite well known, it's not that Pariser's entirely wrong, except that there is a certain concern I have about it, and that is is that it paints students as well as people like you and I as helpless, as somebody that only gets this one feed. If you think back, I mean, researchers talked about this, communication researchers, well before John and I with the uh, hypodermic mo- needle model. when there were concerns about Hitler, with the photos of the Nuremberg trial, how can so many people be convinced and called into action? Propaganda in the US as well to enter World War II. You see these kinds of ideas and theories come and they evolve, especially around changes in how information is disseminated. And I, I, I mean, the upshot here is we're not as helpless as I think Pariser points out. I think also the other thing, yes, algorithms are part of a concern and the equation, but really it's more teaching students, if we're talking about students here or people in general to have better ways of evaluating information, no matter what, is happening with the different modes that they receive and to critically be able to take it apart and question it as well as the verifiability of that information.
0: Well, why do you think those critical skills have atrophied, let's say, over the, the past few decades?
2: I, I, think, I think they've changed. I you know I think that's what's so fascinating. I think librarians have changed their standards or think I know they've changed their standards for information literacy which they often teach in classes two students at the college level at one point it used to be you know seven or nine standards that could be broken out how to find a book look for the author to make sure that the author is you know from a university is it a university press if it's a web page look at the URL look at the design of the page all of these things worked in a in a world that was early web really. And librarians provided a lot of education and also worked closely with faculty to convey those critical thinking skills. But as social media and the web has gotten more sophisticated, as well as where I started, the pace has increased. Um, These critical thinking skills have morphed and demanded new things. Librarians to their credit through ACRL now have moved from standards to actually having uh, a framework for thinking about, for instance, authority. How is authority constructed? And who has authority? Who gets to join the conversation? I mean, these really reflect where media has gone in response to Web 2.0 and its advancement and the fact that we're all part of a conversation now. And um, knowledge production is really
0: a conversation. You, You appeal to a concept called truth workers. There are librarians, teachers, journalists who seem to have... Uh, an even greater responsibility in our age mm-hmm. to try to do a course correction on this and try to inculcate in the next generation better skills of information literacy. Um, John, you know, news coverage itself, um, as I mentioned, has become more angular, more polarized. Um, uh, News critic Jay Rosen often talks about the horse race aesthetic, that there always has to be sort of these two polar views, um, a loss of nuance. Um, Along with what Allison said about librarians, what what are you training the next generation of journalists to do to reassert some kind of authority and truth-seeking
1: and and just general critical skills about assessing information? So... um You know, Allison kind of comes at this on the demand side and I'm sort of thinking about the supply side uh, as as somebody who teaches um, journalists and thinks a lot about journalism. Um, I think, you know, the 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 movement from uh, truth to consensus has a parallel in the journalistic world, which is we're thinking a lot about this great sea change from the model of informing, uh, uh, which is the old broadcast model, the one to many model. The 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 newspaper company that throws a, a newspaper on everyone's doorstep, or the radio station that broadcasts uh, into every car or house, um, to a model of engagement. And engagement uh, is quite different. Uh, many of uh, the best news organizations these days are tasking whole teams to think about how do we. Uh, build an audience, build a public around particular issues and stories, building communities of interest. And um, so in terms of training students uh, we're trying to get them to think a lot more about who is this story for, how can that audience become part of this story, whether through its social media, comments, just sourcing. Um, I think the skills that we want though for them to apply in terms of uh sort of news literacy and information literacy are broadly speaking some basic statistical competence um some sociology of knowledge uh you know like what's the National Institutes of Health, um, you know what? What are uh, you know? What's the World Bank? Uh, you know some of the major kind of pillars of, of kind of traditional authority. But then at the same time, this ability to um, think critically, as Allison said, and this it may sound kind of idealistic, but to a- apply the scientific method to everything. In other words, have a hypothesis, find evidence, test it, and um, you know I think in an era where uh, authority and trust have declined that's sort of what we need to do is arm arm young journalists but also just this whole generation to be able to really think critically across all these domains where the experts are no longer uh, going to be the shortcut the heuristic to you know to the end goal they have to really do it themselves and so what about this this issue or
0: maybe the tension between the need for engagement in news and what you just said about also trying to deliver the truth. I think we all feel that uh, perhaps the most informative sources might not be the most exciting or the ones that are most likely to be retweeted or shared on a Facebook feed. Um, how do we overcome that that tension and try to surface more material uh, of nuance and that uh, journalists who know what the NIH is and uh, other, other sources
1: of truth? Um. So just a, a two, two quick examples, um, both of which uh, ProPublica, which is a leading investigative nonprofit news outlet, was involved in. Um, they, we recently interviewed uh, some of their team that was working on a story about maternal mortality, and they knew that statistically the United States still has a real problem with this compared to other developed nations. And they wanted to investigate the stories, and uh, they put out a call through, um uh, through their online, uh, you know, avenues, uh, they're partnered with NPR and just said, you know, families, share your stories about, uh, you know, women who have had near-death experiences or, or or maternal mortality incidents, and they immediately got thousands of stories within the first week, um, connecting this sort of knowledge, the statistical pattern to the real lived stories of Americans across the country, and they've rolled this out uh, both NPR and ProPublica together, and it's a tremendous story, but it's a great example of how crowdsourcing uh, and conversation with audience and audience engagement can then feed into a real knowledge-based piece. And then the second piece I just mentioned really quickly, and this is relevant to, uh, to the extreme weather events that we've been uh, uh, encountering and talking about recently, is that um, ProPublica in, in combination with the Texas Tribune last year put together a big package about the vulnerability of Houston to hurricanes and they worked with leading researchers in the state these leading scientists and brought together all this data and did this tremendous package that basically said we need to get our act together Houston or else we're gonna be have a real problem and that is going more into the expert domain but I really feel like journalists need to be able to do both crowdsource into the vast public and also tap tap expert knowledge in a way that can inform the public great examples Allison how do we assuming
0: we can get um, great sources like uh, ProPublica uh, and what they've done um, available. They are available. They're online. They distribute through many different newspapers, actually, um, a lot of their research. Um, and uh, But how do we connect those to the next generation? How can we get... Students involved in that. You, you write about truth workers like librarians that only 20% of the students you surveyed actually ever sought help from a librarian, uh, which is a rather uh, shocking statistic. Um, how can we encourage students um, uh, to begin to interact more with these kinds of sources?
2: I think that uh I, I think educators and librarians uh, within a university setting, uh, or a, a college, or a community college setting, or high school, need to be vigilant about this. This has to be something that they're committed to across the board. To that end, uh, there is a dean at a, a state, a CSU state university that I know who also is a research research analyst for us. Uh, and we were discussing, what can librarians do that's different? What kinds of solutions are different? And she was saying that at her small library, yes, they have LexisNexis, the database, which gives students access to all this different news, but it's a research tool and she said it's been difficult to convince faculty that this is the kind of tool that's really not browsable. It really doesn't get the news out there. It's a great research tool, but really librarians need to step up and as they've always curated and selected, they need to think about how students get their news. For instance, one of the most frequent stops, if it's not a reference librarian, is that portal page for a library. And she said the real estate's in huge demand, but they made a decision to get a digital subscription for the university that she's at and to make The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Journal of Commerce, different publications on a digital newsstand and a story is selected each day and put in a box on the portal so that students realize there's a new news story today. And this has been something that the library is pointing out to me. It's also something to work with faculty closely and talk about how to integrate these tools. There's no way students can afford a digital subscription to the New York Times themselves. Um, New York Times, in her situation, she negotiated with them how to develop that model on her campus so that when students logged in with their uh, password for the campus, their user information, they could get access to these different newspapers every single day and make news more browsable and more apparent and bring it out on the portal site for the library. That's an interesting solution and um, it certainly goes beyond librarian saying, but we have news. We have it through LexisNexis. It's really understanding the uses of these different resources from through the lens of a student's experience.
0: What about the question of serendipitous encounters with news? Maybe not the headlines, what is the topmost uh, mm-hmm. story at the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. What about all the aspects of, of news and information that... Uh, Um, You might only get if you had a physical newspaper and were sort of leafing through it in um, in a casual way. How can we push students to find those materials and find new topics that they might be interested in? You know, uh,
1: Cass Sunstein at at Harvard uh, Law School, his his new book, Hashtag Republic, is all about this, about how... And I think it's a a pretty persuasive uh, argument that serendipity... In uh, encountering information is really at core to democracy. Um, that uh, that this this kind of chance encounter with different perspectives, different issues, um, whether they be in our backyard or or uh, on another continent, is, is really important and it's really central to what we think about as uh, you know the uh, the lifeblood of an informed citizenry. Um, I think one. So we uh, recently we've done some research here at Northeastern uh, about on journalists and uh, who they follow on Twitter mm-hmm. and noticed some amount of ideological segregation. and um, what that points to, I think, is that I think average people, college students, citizens, ourselves, should all be thinking more carefully about how we construct these online environments. Who we follow, the sources we follow—is there diversity in uh, this uh, this set of choices? Of course, Google and Facebook, uh, you know, will impose their algorithms, but we actually know the the research is that their algorithms um, aren't—they're uh, significant, but they uh, do not dictate everything. A, a lot of what. We see is because we've made certain choices about what to click on and whom to follow Um, And so I you know, I think that's a challenge for all of us to think about who who do we follow? Which sources is it does it have a balance to it? Do I have an insight into the rust belt or California uh, or women and minorities uh, or uh, you know working-class people in the south and uh, trying to think broadly about constructing a universe that looks um, broad and diverse, I think, is really uh, uh, something to, to aspire to. What about the deluge of information? So if we were
0: all to follow more people online, the sea of information that you've both written about in your work seems to just expand exponentially. And it's, um, you know, I guess it's just part of our age and it increases every year of how much we're taking in what sort of tactics do you try to train college students to have? And I guess pulling back a little bit more generally, our listeners in general are, I'm sure, feel this every day that they have so many news sources and outlets for information and blogs and uh, social media. Um, there's so much coming at us. What do you say uh, to people about this, um, Allison? How, how do you respond after talking to these thousands of college students to say, we understand this—that there's so much coming at you—but we feel you should be doing this instead of your satisfying ways and and searching for consensus and wiki voice.
2: I, you know, in response to something that that John said earlier about um, the concerns and where to lay these different concerns, we did a study a few years ago with a large sample, over eight thousand students. Um, and students from 25 universities in the U.S. about how they found everyday life information. And a big category was news of course, but what we found was and people forget this, is that talking to people and discussing different news topics is a way of actually winnowing down and um, fact-checking and um, uh, evaluating information. We found uh, that there was a two-step in process, which is somewhat encouraging in light of fake news and the question that you're asking, Dan, and that is is that uh, most students that we studied actually talked to somebody about where to look before they went online. I think there's this assumption that, again, a widespread spread assumption that I've begun to question, which is whether Students are just looking at social media as their primary source of information. We found also in our study of lifelong learning that came out a couple of years ago about recent grads that uh, there is this back and forth with authorities that we have in life and people that we trust, people that we can discuss different sources with. I I certainly believe that there's some credit there and it shouldn't be underrepresented, um, that those kinds of discussions are important, especially about making decisions. Um, I think uh, uh, about the authority that John was talking about in recognizing these agencies, I remember on the everyday life study that we did. uh, For those that kind of information, a student again in the Midwest was talking about doing some canning. I forget what he was canning, some fruit or meat or something preparing for winter. And he said, you know, I found two different accounts online in our follow-up interviews to the survey. And he said, and they disagreed with one one another and I said what'd you do and he said I went down to the county egg extension because I could die um, it's not like it's a paper and um, and I said you took that extra step and he said and I learned a lot too and the and the fellow at the counter said you come back anytime and it's it's a great example of developing that network that social network that's people that's one-to-one in a format. But with those kinds of serious decisions, we have found throughout in our research that students talk to somebody that they trust, whether that's a coworker, a boss, a parent. Parents weren't trusted very much for advice about raising children, by the way, a funny finding in itself.
0: So people and further research rather than algorithm seems to be part of the solution here. What would you recommend to our listeners out there as one key takeaway? What should they do today in response to your research to improve their information environment?
2: I I defer to an interview we did with a fellow named, and it's on our site for Project Information Literacy, a fellow named Howie Schneider who got a Knight Grant, who developed a program at Stony Brook um, out on Long Long Island in the journalism department. He used to be the executive editor at Newsday, and he taught a course and developed a class on news literacy. And he's been teaching it for about 10 years. And he said, I teach students an acronym, and that acronym is V-I-A. And it's easy to remember. And it's a very efficient way for evaluating the legitimacy and quality of news that every student can do. And that is, has the journalist verified their sources and their information? Like John was talking about, have they gone to agencies? Has somebody else said this? Where is this information coming versus opinion? And then secondly, the I stands for independence from commercial concerns or political concerns. In other words, they're objective and they've maintained that objective, that, that objectivity. And then the last is A, which is accountable that they are something that John talked about at the beginning, that they're involved in a system of creating (laughs) quality journalism where they have editors and headline writers and copywriters and they are responsible. It is their job. It's not something that they're just posting one day and framing it like a news story. And so that acronym um, is, is easy to carry around. And it's VIA, verification, independence, and accountability. And I come back to it over and over again as a solution.
0: That's great. VIA. John, what's maybe one final thing that you can add that our listeners should do to help stimulate the truth and get us out of this factual recession?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I'm not sure I have a a panacea for all of our problems, but... um, I think, in addition to, to to pretty carefully examining our own um, our own information sources through social, I think it's also worth remembering that um, we shouldn't have a kind of false uh, uh, nostalgia or a kind of uh, an idea that there was a golden age necessarily. And and I, I say this also acknowledging that there are problems with that we have. Kind of branded the factual recession, but you know, if if you if you look at Americans' political knowledge over the past fifty years, it's essentially flat. I mean, people have never been able to name all nine Supreme Court justices and uh, you know their local legislators. I mean, that's that's always been true. And what this points to is something uh, Stephen Sloman at Brown has a new book called "The, the Knowledge Illusion," and and what he points to uh, is that. Um, we've we actually know very little about the world as human beings, and we've always, to to the extent that we've known anything, it's been because of our communities and and the groups that are around us, um, and I think we can make those communities better and stronger. Um, we have the advantage of a tremendous number of people now, uh, whether they be columnists or bloggers or just interested people, vacuuming up interesting information uh, and uh, for us on Twitter and Facebook and and basically feeding us all kinds of good stuff. And so, if we can select, you know, the the right few dozen people, I think we can we can both overcome the information overload problem. Um, I think we can actually be smarter. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic uh, that even though we're in a real, uh, as we've called it, a recession, that we can come out of it. Um, but I do think it's going to take some really careful attention to our, to, to our information environments.
0: You can find more about Allison Head and John Wibby's work at projectinfolit.org, which we will link to from the show notes along with other resources. Allison, John, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. new is a production of the Northeastern University Libraries. It is produced by Thomas Berry and engineered by Jonathan Ionone in Snell Libraries recording studios with assistance from the Libraries podcast team. Evan Simpson, Deborah Mandel, Jonathan Reed, Sarah Sweeney, Brooke Williams, and Deborah Smith. Our thanks to News at Northeastern and Northeastern's College of Arts, Media, and Design for their help. You can subscribe and check out more episodes of What's New on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on the web at whatsnewpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter at Podcast What's New. I'm
1: Dan Cohen. See you next time on What's New.